sometimes said that wars don't solve anything. Is that the case of the Civil War? Pulitzer Prize winning author James McPherson shares his views when we return. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Where the heck are our seats? I don't know. Keep climbing. You called around before you bought these tickets, right? Well, there weren't a lot of ads for ticket places, so you do have the SBC Smart Yellow Pages, don't you? I don't know. I didn't really pay attention. You should have. They have more ads, more info we could have used. It's going to be hard to do the wave all by ourselves up here. Well, get up. Let's try it. For the most complete, reliable information around, look for the SBC Smart Yellow Pages or go to smartpages.com. Prize-winning historian Dr. James McPherson. Let's pick it back up where we left off a minute ago. What impact did technology and the navies have in the struggle for independent, independence for the South and Union victory in the North? And um, what impact did foreign support have on the war thereafter? Well, technology, I think, had a big impact. Uh, there were some major technological developments in just the uh, 20 years or so before the Civil War that uh, really uh, were important. Uh, one was the development of steam-driven warships. Um, the first ones really uh, came along in the 1840s, but the United States Navy didn't convert to, begin to convert to steam until the 1850s. Uh, and when the war started, they had a number of steam frigates. Uh, they chartered and built any number of uh, additional steam-powered uh, warships. Uh, and then, of course, the major, everybody's familiar with the development of the ironclad warships, the most famous ones being the Monitor and what was popularly called the Merrimack, but was renamed the uh, CSS Virginia, which clashed on March 9th, 1862, in the world's first battle between uh, ironclad ships. Uh, because the North had uh, far greater industrial capacity and, and, and um, shipbuilding capacity, uh, and uh, the, the Union Navy uh, was far larger and, and more powerful than the Confederate Navy on the high seas especially, but also on the rivers of, of the West, the Mississippi, Tennessee, Cumberland, et cetera, rivers. Uh, I think that uh, that particular technological development uh, gave a big edge uh, to, to, the, uh, to the Union forces, but it was partly offset by... Uh, some technological innovations by the Confederacy. Uh, they built 
um, they built a number of ironclad uh, warships and commerce raiders uh, that used, utilized technolo new technology on the high seas or in the rivers. Uh, but most importantly, they developed what they called torpedoes. Uh, we would call them mines today, naval mines, mm. uh, which actually uh, sank uh, or dam badly damaged something like uh, 47 uh, Union ships during the course of the war, mostly in estuaries and rivers. Um, but that uh, that was a Confederate innovation that was fairly new. Uh, railroads, of course, had been around since the 1830s, but there had been a big wave of railroad building in the 1850s, and both sides uh, utilized railroads to move uh, troops and also to uh, bring supplies to the troops. But, of course, railroads were vulnerable to being interrupted by burning of bridges and the tearing up of tracks, uh, and that became uh, a particular weapon of Confederate cavalry. What, what impact did foreign support have on this technology? Well, they, uh, the Confederates built some of their major commerce raiders, uh, and they were trying to build uh, some ironclad ships in British, or have built for them in British shipyards. Uh, these were private shipyards, uh, and the building of them and the escape of some of them to the Confederacy, which used them to attack uh, merchant shipping uh, of the United States was real, really a violation of the British uh, Neutrality Act, uh, but the British government at first was not very enthusiastic about enforcing that uh, Neutrality Act, and as a consequence, uh, after the war, the North recovered more than $15 million of damage uh, from the British government for its negligence in allowing these ships to be built in England and to uh, then uh, escape to um, uh, to become part of the Confederate Navy. Uh, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of the war. We've talked a lot about the impact of moral sentiments. We've talked about whether or not the war was inevitable. I'm curious, I think our listeners are curious about the legacy of the war. It's, it's sometimes said that wars don't solve anything. Did the Civil War solve anything? I sure think it did. Uh, two of the most divisive and uh, uh, apparently irre irresolvable uh, conflicts uh, or problems uh, in the early history of the United States, problems left over from the founding of the nation, were first the question whether this bold new experiment in a Republican government that is not a monarchy but a government um, of, of, uh, of elected officials uh, could survive uh, in a world where republics uh, had come and gone for centuries and no republic had survived uh, as long as the United States hoped to survive. Most of them had either collapsed into tyranny or had divided into two or more um, hostile factions. And, of course, that's exactly what happened to the United States in 1861, so the big issue, one of the biggest issues of the Civil War is this, this, uh, this test, as Lincoln called it in the Gettysburg Address, whether a nation founded on the ideals of 1776 and 1789 could survive as one nation indivisible, or would it, uh, would it go the way of, uh, of most republics uh, in history of, of being swept into the dustbin of history? Well, the Civil War resolved that. Uh, since 1865, no state or region has seriously tried to secede from the United States. 
1865, there has been no threat that the United States would not, no serious threat, internal threat, that the United States would not survive as one nation indivisible. That problem, that issue was resolved. Talk and the other bit. bitter, divisive issue, of course, left over from the revolution was slavery. Uh, a nation that professed to be based on freedom and to be a beacon light of freedom for the rest of the world had become by the 19th century the largest slave-holding country in the world, uh, a, a hypocrisy, as Lincoln called it. That, too, was resolved by the Civil War, and with the 13th Amendment, uh, slavery uh, came to um, uh, a universal and permanent end. You've talked a little bit about the political, political legacy of the Civil War. In your opinion, what's the social and cultural legacy of the war? Well, uh, I think uh, that was crucial, too, uh, and really changed the uh, direction of American development or, or confirmed uh, the direction that most of the country was going in the middle of the 19th century, but it was unclear whether that would, would in fact be the direction the country was going. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, the North and the South, based on two different labor systems and on the social institutions and ideology that were generated by those labor systems, had grown further and further apart in the 19th century. The South was primarily agricultural, uh, based on forced labor. It resembled what we would today call, in many ways, a third-world country. Whereas the United States, I mean the, the northern states, the free states, were developing in the direction that we would today call uh, a first world country, a, a, a democratic, capitalist, industrializing society, uh, dynamic in its uh, economic and social development. In the middle of the 19th century, uh, it was not clear which would be the the dominant factor in American development. The, 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 there was a lot of uh, dynamic expansionism in the South. They, uh, there was an effort to acquire Cuba, which was a slave labor society, uh, what we might call a third world society, to expand into more Mexican territory than was acquired in 1848, to expand into Central America and create a kind of tropical slave empire there. Uh, these were big issues in the 1850s, so it wasn't really clear uh, which of these two social systems uh, was going to prevail? Well, northern victory in the Civil War ensured that the United States would develop into uh, a united first world country rather than to be continued uh, continue to be divided uh, into a third world and a first world part of the country. Now, of course, the South for generations remained poorer and uh, less advanced industrially than the North. Uh, but ever since the uh, World War II, the, the so-called Sun Belt region of the country, uh, uh, which includes most of the Old South, has been rapidly catching up to the rest of the, summer, uh, rest of the country. And I think that uh, the Civil War was a key uh, punctuation, uh, punctuation point in that, uh, that kind of socioeconomic and cultural uh, development. You talked about the potential expansion of slavery into Mexico and Central America and Cuba. What was the attitude of foreign nations toward the war then and now as they look back upon it? Well, uh, most foreign nations, the nations uh, whose opinion really counted were Britain and France, and we know a lot more about their attitudes toward the American Civil War uh, to the extent that uh, other nations uh, like Spain or Prussia or Austria uh, had a particular position toward the American Civil War, they weren't in, in a position to do very much about it. Most of the um, 
much of the uh, ruling class, the upper classes, the conservative classes, those who supported uh, monarchy, the supported uh, aristocracy in European countries, actually sympathized with the Confederacy. That's fascinating. Uh, because they saw the Confederacy as a society based on a hierarchy uh, ruled by gentlemen um, uh, with, uh, with a, a sharply defined caste and class system, very much like their own societies, and they feared uh, democracy. They feared the masses in their own country. Uh, and that was to some extent true even in France and in England, but with it, especially in England there was also a very powerful middle class and a very strong working class, and those people sympathized with the Union cause, but slavery was a stumbling block uh, because so long as the North was not fighting to abolish slavery, and in the first year or two of the war, uh, the Lincoln administration repeatedly insisted that they were fighting only for Union and not to abolish slavery. It was kind of difficult for these um, these elements in British and to some extent in French society to uh, to strongly sympathize with the North, but once. Uh, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and uh, the emancipation of the slaves became a northern war aim. Uh, that solidified the support uh, of the middle and, and working classes in Britain for the Union cause. Uh, and even uh, even conservatives in, in Britain and France who who might have continued to sympathize with the Confederacy couldn't say couldn't so, say so very loud because uh, th these countries had abolished slavery in their West Indian colonies a uh, generation before the war, and uh, they they looked upon slavery with uh, a certain amount of distaste. So once it became a war of freedom against slavery, it uh, pretty much forestalled any possibility of uh, European intervention. Well, in addition to the the result of keeping the Union one, and in addition to freeing four million slaves from the bondage of chains and iron, what was the war's principal legacy? Well, I think the principal legacy is the shape uh, and uh, nature of American society as it has developed since 1865. Um, a, a dynamic uh, capitalist uh, entrepreneurial uh, society politically based on widespread suffrage. Of course, one of the results of the war, uh, not not thoroughly enforced at first uh, and not enforced at all in some ways for a long time, was the enfranchisement of the freed slaves. Uh, the 14th Amendment, who de which declares that any person born in the United States is a citizen of the United States, entitled to all the privileges and immunities and due process and equal protection of the law. Um, that was an important achievement, achievement of the war, and we've seen its, its consequences uh, not, entirely, not entirely intended, I think, in 1866 when Congress passed the 14th Amendment, or 1868 when the states completed the ratification of it. But the 14th Amendment has become the basis for virtually all of the civil rights progress made not only by uh, African Americans, but by women and by uh, ethnic Americans uh, of all, all dimensions in, in the last 30 or 40 years. Without that 14th Amendment, I think the United States would be uh, quite a different place than it is today. And without Union victory in the war, I think that the American South would have been 
quite a different place than it is uh, than it is today. So I think those things have to be considered the principal legacy right down to our own time of of the Civil War. Would you be so bold as to say, in many ways, that the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 was the final chapter in the struggle of the Civil War? Uh, it was an important chapter. Uh, I would say that um, the legislative achievements uh, and the court decisions that upheld them in the 1960s uh, and 1970s uh, might constitute the final chapter. This 1954 Brown decision may be the penultimate chapter. But the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the uh, Voting Rights Act of 65 uh, and uh, some of the, I think, Title IX of um, the Civil Rights Act uh, uh, having to do with women's rights, uh, and some of the other changes that date uh, uh, starting from the 1950s but going on through the 1970s uh, are, really, uh, are, are really the final chapter. Um, uh, there probably still has to be a, a coda or a... a, a, a an epilogue uh, to that final chapter, and we don't know, we're in the middle of that now, perhaps, uh, of the American Civil War, but uh, it, it's kind of interesting that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1965 and 1964 were both passed um, on the uh, 100th anniversary of the last two years of the American Civil War. Remarkable, remarkable. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to follow up at some point in the future to look at the impact of African Americans in the struggle during the Civil War on the ground and through literature and writing. But I'd also love to talk to you about the impact of religion and faith on these issues and, and also to look at the influence of Great Britain and, and uh, France in these struggles. Thank you so much, Dr. McPherson, for your wonderful insights into the Civil War, into the power, the drama, and the legacy of the Civil War. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it very much. I'm Gaston Espinosa, and with me today is Dr. James McPherson. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. McPherson.